I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. One would think, living through the racial turbulence of the 1960s, I might not be surprised and saddened by today's omnipresent, blatant racism. But apparently my hope-driven belief was terribly naive. I actually thought we had learned from the wasteful racist violence splashed so vividly on American TV news of the lunch counter attacks on black Americans, the fire hoses, the police dogs, compared with the brave and peaceful protests of the widespread civil rights movement, that it might have shaken us out of the ugly depths of racism. I really did think so. And when a black American became president, well, that really, I thought, put the nail in the coffin of racism. Boy, was I wrong. Now it's all too obvious that racism never went away. It had just been there below the surface until 2016 when Trump made it okay to be openly racist. What happened to the white people in the 1960s whose neighborhoods experienced rapid racial change? What was the long-term effect? Did getting to know people of color as neighbors have the desired effect of lessening racial fear of the other Examining history from 30,000 feet up is one perspective. PBS's recent corporate-funded Vietnam series used that method and as a result greatly missed much of the real meaning of that war. On the ground, access to history as it happens is vital to any real understanding and learning from history. And that's where we're going today. According to CBS journalist Bill Curtis, writing about her new book, Redline, uh, by our guest Linda Gartz, He said, the book peels back the onion of America's original sin to a new level. Told through the lives of her Chicago family, Gartz probes the invisible web of oppression that affected both whites and blacks. Redlining destroyed the American dream without its victims even knowing it. But, he says through this book, now we know. Linda Gartz, thanks for being here with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you so much for having me, Bert. Well, the book is called Redlined, a memoir of race, change, and fractured community in 1960s Chicago. Its author, our guest Linda Gartz, is a six-time Emmy-honored documentary producer, author, blogger, and educator. The book offers a personal context to a number of the defining events of the 20th century, not the least of which was her own community's tumultuous experience with race. Well, here we are well into the 21st century, and it seems clear that a great many white Americans don't understand what racism is. 
I get the impression that many believe that, well, if no crosses are burned in the front yards of black people, eh, there's no racism. And that when others point out racism, they insist we are merely playing the race card, which they then dismiss as false. Your book sheds light on what Curtis called the invisible web of oppression, which most white people don't even believe is real. Before we get into why he wrote this book and how it came to be, my guess is, frankly, most white people, most listeners are not familiar with the term redlining. What is redlining? How does it work? Okay, well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about this because my um, experience has been that anybody under 50 doesn't know what it means and has probably never heard of it. And even people who are our age um, may think they know what it means, but they really don't. So um, redlining is a term that refers to the color-coded maps that were created starting in about 1933 under the Roosevelt administration. Um, the Roosevelt administration was hoping to jumpstart the housing market by making loans more available to potential home buyers. And what they did um, is go to country, uh, cities throughout the country and ask real estate agents and banks to color code the neighborhood based upon the quality of the housing and how safe the loans would be. So they created a color-coded map for each of these communities. Green meant an area was really good and safe for a loan. Blue meant that it was a very good area for a loan. Yellow was called definitely declining. And red was called hazardous, meaning no loans at all should be given in that neighborhood. And there could be several reasons that a neighborhood was, quote, redlined or colored red. It could be because of really terrible housing stock or a lot of rooming houses. Um, but one thing for sure is that if one African-American moved into a neighborhood, then that neighborhood was colored red. It was redlined. And that meant that there were no loans available for either blacks or whites, um, housing loans for mortgages or home equity loans to keep up one's property. So that's where the term redlining originated, and it was in place as a federal government policy from 1933 until 1968 when the Fair Housing Act was passed. Um, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't still happen today in more insidious and, let's say, nuanced ways. Wow. So, so it sounds like you're saying that... <laughs> It's hard to believe that federal government policy segregated our country and, and exacerbated yeah. things. That yeah, it's actually, it was the federal government, um, on, and along with the FHA, which was created around the same time as Hulk, maybe about a year later, Hulk refers to the Homeowners Loan Corporation. Um, and the FHA um, adamantly refused to give loans to any kind of new developments even if there were one African-American renting or purchasing any of those units in that new development. So it was federal policy, and banks, in a way, had to go along because oh, sure. they couldn't get uh, their loans underwritten. Wow. And this, these things that, that most people are just unaware of, but it absolutely has real effects on a lot of people's lives. So what, what inspired you to, to write this book, Redlining? What, what discovery did you make? Well, uh, 
You know, this is something that was not on my bucket list, uh, that is to write a book. <laughs> um, but after my mom died in 1994, my brothers and I were going through um, our parents' former home, um, separating trash from treasure. And when we got to the attic, I'd say we found our gold. We couldn't believe it, but there we found thousands and thousands of pages of letters, diaries, documents, photos, 8-millimeter films, audio tapes, scraps of paper with notes that had been saved for the entire 20th century. And we started organizing these into banker's boxes. We didn't have time to go through them at that time. Um, and we ended up having 25 banker's boxes labeled by the name of the person to whom uh, the contents um, related. So they sat for a long time in my garage uh, while I was raising my family. And then one day I thought, mm, I wonder what's in those. And I pulled out the World War II letters, of which I have about 300 to and from my navigator uh. uncle um, during, during the war. And I was immediately whisked back to the 1940s. Their writing was so vivid. They wrote to their son and their brother and the my mother's brother-in-law, he wrote to them. I got to see what it was like to be a young man trying to literally navigate the path to become a navigator. It was a, an arduous path. And I got to see what my parents' lives were like on the west side in the 1940s, the west side of Chicago. So then I was hooked, and I started reading one set of diaries after another. My mom started a diary at age 10, in 1927, my dad kept a diary when he was 19 and 20, and this was before they knew each other, so it wasn't like one influenced the other. And my grandmother had uh, letters that she had received from Europe. That, that's a long story to get into that, but um, I was just thrilled to find these document, this documentation basically of the entire 20th century. But the thing that moved me the most to write the book is I felt that the notes and diaries that my mother kept about our changing neighborhood in the 1960s, from uh -huh. the time the first African-American moved onto the block, um, for the next 30 years, as they did not desert their properties, we had small apartment buildings, but continued to care for them, and she documented exactly what happened in that neighborhood during that time. Wow, interesting. Well, that's what inspired me. <laughs> yes, interesting stuff. And uh, so many good things that come out of life are not actually intentional, for sure. <laughs> My husband sometimes says, is this a blessing or a curse? <laughs> oh, gosh, I know. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Linda Gartz, whose new book is called Redlining, a memoir of race, change, and fractured community in 1960s Chicago. And this is uh, from personal experience. I, I have no doubt that many, if not most, white Americans accept the old saying, there goes the neighborhood when people of color move in. You argue that redlining itself was responsible for the decline of your old neighborhood, as well as other urban neighborhoods across the country. Tell us about how that works, please. Well, it worked this way. The arrival of African Americans in a neighborhood was greeted with horror, usually, by most white people because they knew the value of their properties would sink. And one of the main reasons the values of their properties would sink is because banks no longer gave loans 
to be able to get a mortgage. And there were a group of unscrupulous real estate agents who were known as blockbusters because they literally broke the block, meaning they sold to an African-American, and that was just anathema. These blockbusters used racial fears to be able to scare whites into selling quickly for cash because you couldn't get a mortgage. And they do horrible things like call at night and say, they're coming, and then hang up. Or we'd find flyers in the vestibules of our apartment buildings that would say, get out before it's too late. And they would do things like perhaps say, go to a white homeowner and say, you know, I'll offer you 9000 for your house this week, but maybe next week it'll be 8000 So whites fled, and they were able to flee. So they, they, they lost too because they had to sell their houses for less than the value. But they were able to go somewhere else. They were able to go to the suburbs sure. where blacks yeah. were not welcome. Right. This hurt African Americans in the sense that they... Well, first of all, it must have been a horrible feeling that everybody was wanted to get out the minute you mm. came in. Mm. But they could not get mortgages to purchase a home. So they would have to buy in what was called contract. Buying on contract is like buying on time. You, let's say, put a couple bucks down in an outfit, and then you say, I'll pay a few bucks every week until you finally own it. Well, they never had any equity in the property that they purchased um, through a contract. And if they had paid maybe 85% of their loans and they missed one payment, they were evicted. And then these real estate agents could resell the property over and over again if they were able to continue to evict uh, the, the owners. So it really has had long-lasting effects on African Americans in this country. And today... Blacks have about, oh, 6 to 7% the wealth that whites have because one of the main re- ways that we build wealth is through home ownership. And as those sure. homes gain in value over the years, we're able to pass that value on to our children. And African Americans were not able to do that for 30 years. It just, I'm trying to f- imagine the, the genesis of, of official redlining. It just, I guess... I would have to guess here that uh, that banks just didn't want to put their money at risk, and they figured, well, if black people move in, their loan is is more at risk. Well, well their loans would be unsecured by the government. Uh-huh. You know, banks expect you know they're not going to give out a loan if they don't have that federal backing. Now, there were there were some African American banks in neighborhoods. Right that would sometimes step in and make it possible for blacks to own property. So I'm not saying that no blacks ever own property. Obviously, that's not true. But um, one of the things that you find um, at a great site, it's called MappingInequality.com. And this site, put together by the University of Richmond and University of West Virginia, I believe, together, is um, a site that contains... Uh, scanned versions of the original 1940s Homeowners Loan Corporation maps. And you can put in your neighborhood or any neighborhood of about 230 cities in the country and see exactly what these maps looked like. And it also has commentary on the side that the real estate agents would make, such as threatened by Negro encroachment. (laughs) (laughs) 
um, or or Italians moving in. Oh I mean, it was both foreigner, foreigners were targeted too, but nothing like um, African Americans. And it was based upon a philosophy of the of the federal government that was in these documents that that said their belief was inharmonious racial groups should not live together. So that's where, you know, that, that was just their belief, so they put it into law. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm sitting here, it's like, it's, it's so hard to believe, but I know it's true. I mean, our, our history has gone on a long time and had, you know, official segregation, even so-called progressives like Woodrow Wilson, you know, I definitely uh, instituted a, a specific policy of segregation and keeping blacks out of certain jobs. Uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, this was just co- common throughout the country. And, of course, you had the Jim Crow laws in the oh, South, which were even more onerous. Yeah. Where, where blacks couldn't get a library card, where a, a black man could be lynched just for walking behind a right, white woman. Right. And even and white women were lynched, too. Uh, one black woman was mm. lynched in the South because she scolded some white children for throwing rocks. Um, one of the things I think that uh, I've learned more than anything else is really, in the doing the research for this book, um, is, is the... The horrible. I mean, we know blacks have been mistreated, but when you really read the details, it's it's terrorism. I mean, this is a this was a form of state-sanctioned terrorism against citizens of our country. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Here we are, fifty years after nineteen sixty-eight, yeah. and we're still talking about that. Well, now we we talked a little bit about Jim Crow and how you know the, the terror that that roamed the streets of of the South, the old Confederacy. People must have, white people must have known why black people were leaving the South uh, for, you know, as the, as the book says, uh, the warmth of other suns, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, did it matter to, to white people that they knew that they were uh, you know, looking for a better life and to get away from the horrible Jim Crow laws? Did it matter? Well, it mattered in the sense that they were losing their workforce. That's all they cared about. Hmm. It mattered in the sense that uh, they weren't going to have this cheap labor that was under the thumb of every white person that existed in the South. Um, they, the Chicago Defender is a very um, famous Chicago newspaper that was written hmm. for an audience of African Americans starting around 1900. And this newspaper was smuggled into the South because uh-huh. if whites found that blacks had this newspaper, there could be serious consequences. And this newspaper, the Chicago Defender, encouraged African Americans to come north that they would not face these onerous Jim Crow laws, although they found a different type of yeah. um, racism in the north. It wasn't um, where you could, you know, could be could be refused a library card, although people did refuse blacks, you know, housing. Sure. Uh, that's certainly uh, true in the North. But um, your question was, you know, did whites care that blacks wanted to leave? Well, they just figured they were trying to escape their proper place in society. <laughs> and they would actually stalk railroad stations to see if blacks were trying to leave, and they would force them off trains. So a lot of African Americans would go to a train station that was in a kind of out-of-the-way place so they could make their escape, um, often well into the wee hours of the morning so that they wouldn't be detected. 
and that's just a, a small portion of it, but the, there's a book called The Chicago Defender, or I think it's called Just the Defender, which is also an excellent book. Um, but you mentioned The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. I use that extensively for research, and she goes into detail also about you know, uh, yeah, African-Americans trying to escape these horrible Jim Crow racist laws. Well, of course, nobody wants their property value to go down, to have declining property values. Property values in your neighborhood did decline as the demographics shifted. That was not inevitable. Why, why did it happen? In what way was it not inevitable? Well, I guess given the fact that there were these redlining uh, laws, it kind of it kind of was inevitable because nobody's going to. Well, I shouldn't say nobody. There were people who tried to stay. There were whites who tried to stay. We we stayed for a very long time, and actually, my parents continued to take care of those buildings for thirty years, as I mentioned. Um, but I think that people just felt after a while they were like the only white people left in the neighborhood. And neighborhoods became more dangerous. Um, there was more poverty. Um, these neighborhoods did not attract people who could spend a fortune on homes because those people could live in other places. So it's, I mean, given the realities of economics, I mean, sometimes some neighborhoods tried to, to stop this, like Oak Park, which is a suburb just west of the my old neighborhood on the west side of Chicago, which, by the way, to give people a sense of what I'm talking about, if anybody has been to downtown Chicago, if you drew almost a straight line west from downtown Chicago to about five miles west, that is right where I grew up. And if you go a couple miles further west is this suburb called Oak Park. And Oak Park made it illegal to put up for sale signs. Because what would happen is if people would see like three for sale signs on a block, then everybody would panic even more and more homes would be sold. So it's wow. one of the things I learned in this research is that basically if it, whites don't want to live with blacks, that's basically what I learned. Um, if 10% or more of the housing in the community becomes uh, occupied by African Americans, then whites tend to leave, and property values just drop because of the fact that it's mostly African-American. Sad to say. Uh, apparently so. I mean, it has happened, and, and certainly coming from a suburb of Boston, I've you know, seen it happen, uh, demographic shifts uh, in, in different neighborhoods. Uh, you know, there'll be one ethnic group and then another ethnic group, and it, it just happens. You know, it just does happen. There, there are demographic shifts. So in 1959, four years, well, your parents bought their first home in West Garfield Park uh, in 1949, um, and it, it, a decade later, the population was majority African-American, and four years before the first black family moved onto your block, a house nearby was sold to an African-American family. And this is, you know, the on-the-ground history stuff that is informative like nothing else can do. Tell us about the reaction of some of the white people in the area when the first black family moved into your block. Uh, well, there's two incidents here. First, our neighborhood, as I mentioned, was called West Garfield Park. And the um, house 
that was sold to African Americans about four blocks south of us and about two blocks west of where our home was, uh, was sold to African Americans in 1959. And I think I'm pretty sure we were out of town. We took this big family trip in the summer of 1959, and we're gone for five weeks. And I don't remember this incident, so what I'm reporting here is what I've researched about it. Um, the house was sold to African Americans, and a groups of a, a thousand up to four thousand. It's not clear how big the crowd was, but between a thousand and four thousand whites began throwing bricks at the building and rioting and shooting off pistols and. The police had to come in and guard this house for several weeks until things quieted down. Now, that was in 59. In the 1960 census, our neighborhood, West Garfield Park, was shown to be 80, approximately 86% white. In 1950, it had been 99 and three quarters percent white. I, get, I find that amazing. That yeah, three quarters, really. And three quarters. <laughs> and so... So already by 1960, uh, we have about 15% African-American. The first black family bought on our block in 1963 in June. And the thing that's significant about this, too, is in terms of my remembrances in our family, is that this was at the height of the civil rights movement. Yes. So everything on TV was about protests and police brutality against African-American peaceful protesters. That was when the images of the hoses being trained upon these young kids in Birmingham. Mm -hmm. That was when Governor Wallace stood in front of the University of Alabama and segregation now, segregation segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. So, and then Medgar Evers was killed, murdered Mm -hmm. in his driveway in June, 10 days after Medgar Evers was murdered. The first African-American moved on to our block. So everything in our lives, from the national news to the local, was about race. And I will say that my family was worried. We didn't know any African-Americans. Most whites didn't. We were so thoroughly segregated. But what happened was um, my parents didn't leave for whatever reason, not because they were great liberals. I'll I'll tell you that. (laughs) Um, They just, I think they just felt, let's wait and see what happens. Uh. And the amazing change that took place is after a a couple of months, my mom writes in her diary that she's not at all unhappy in this changing neighborhood. She likes her neighbors. So it's a perfect example of getting to know the other. Right. You know, when you have a fear of the other that's based upon stereotypes. And then now we were living with African Americans, and my mother found them just lovely people, and they were lovely people. So it's... um, it's a, it's a good lesson, I think, as we have an administration that's trying to teach us to fear the other, yes, as opposed to trying to bring us together. You reminded me when I first moved to New Hampshire in 1981, I was in a little town, and I was by myself then, and, and the neighbors uh, had me over for dinner, and they found out I was Jewish, and i never forget the woman saying, oh, I've heard of Jews, but I've never met one before. <laughs> But that's the thing, you know, when you don't know the other, and obviously we have uh, a president who's who's increasing fear, and fear works very well politically, Lord knows. Yep. Uh, yep. But when you get to know somebody, you realize, huh, 
<laughs> there's, yeah. no, there's no difference. I mean, there's good people and bad people and, you know, well-behaved people and badly behaved. It doesn't matter. Uh. Yeah, and, and it, it's interesting because we, um, we did have uh, a first set of riots in 1965, and my mom comments in her diary that my brother and the next-door neighbor, who's black, are working together on a valve job. <laughs> and those were the days we could work on a car. And they had, she says, they had yeah. their heads together, working together, sweating together, while all this racial turmoil is going uh, on outside. I just thought that was interesting. Boy, that is an interesting slice, and those little uh, tidbits reveal a lot. So your parents, who were named Fred and Lil, were hardly supportive uh, when the first black family moved into the neighborhood. In fact, your father tried to place an ad for his vacant apartments in the local newspaper that read, do you feel you are being forced out of your community? Do you want to live with people like yourself? End of quote. Mm-hmm. What, what do you feel motivated your parents' response? How do you feel about their reaction now? What prompted your dad uh, to do that, and, and how did things change after that? How- well, I think uh, the important thing that I'd like to comment on is that they, they were fearful. They, we did not know African Americans, and they did not want African Americans. Right in the community, just like all of our neighbors, because, yeah. again, there was the fear for the property values. And I have to say that in my family, property and caring for property was considered a noble thing to do, because my grandparents, who were immigrants with a fourth grade education, had made their living mm. as janitors, and they had devoted themselves round the clock to caring for, for buildings and, 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 and apartment buildings. So my dad really was very um, Uh, focused on property as not just a way to make money, but really something that was a good thing to do. Uh He had a college education. He didn't have to have this rooming house. Matter of fact, I sometimes wonder why he did that. Um, But he he believed in in that kind of work, kind of working man work. Um, So he was fearful of of losing his property values, and they were prejudiced. I mean, they they were prejudiced against blacks. and I think what, that's why he placed that ad, because or tried to. They, they, it was illegal. You couldn't place an ad like that. Uh, because he wanted to keep the neighborhood right, white. Yeah. But the, once the change happened, that's what I find so interesting, is that now they are uh, become friends with their African-American neighbors. I don't mean hang out, like have parties together, friends. We never did that with our white neighbors. Um, because they worked around the clock. My parents worked around the clock. Um, but friendly and were willing to help each other. Neighborly. And so those changes take place, again, as we talked before, when you get to know somebody you think is different, but then you find out, hey, I like this person. Yeah, that, that does happen. When, you get, when the walls are taken down, of course we have someone who's insistent on building new walls now, and boy, that's pretty ugly, uh, then things do change. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is Linda Gartz. We're talking about her new book called Redlined, a memoir of race, change, and fractured community in 1960s Chicago, and she grew up in a neighborhood that uh, experienced this change. And your family did experience some violence at the hands of black youth. Your dad was held up more than once. Your brother was attacked and robbed. What do you recall of your parents' feelings at the time? How old were you, and how did the violence affect you? Well, you know, I kind of took my cue from my parents. And interestingly enough, um, 
there didn't seem to be a tremendous reaction to this. I, I think I mentioned it, I, mean, I know I mentioned in the book that my mother's diary entry after writing about my brother being attacked, he's, he's unlocking his bike on Madison Street, which is the commercial district a block from our house, and a young African-American boy, teenage boy, comes up and punches him in the face and steals his bike. Um, so he goes, you know, this is a bike he actually worked on all summer to, wow. to bring it to look like new. Hmm. And my mom records this, and she records the police coming and making a police report who basically tell her, forget it, we're, not, you know, we're never going to find the guy, right, and it right. doesn't matter, we've got too many other problems. Right. And then she says, boy, did I have the ironing tonight. <laughs> I read this, and I'm thinking, your son has just been attacked, and your first comment is, boy, did I have the ironing tonight, and then go on a whole list of chores. You know, it... They were so focused on work, they just sort of took this in their stride in a way. They told my brother to not go off the block anymore, that they, they wanted him to you know, be careful. Um, but they just kind of thought, well, this happened. And for me, I took my cue from my parents. I was in high school at the time, and I thought, gee, this is terrible that this happened to my brother. But then it was like, okay, it's sort of like, oh, it's like a big snowstorm. You move on. You do then go on to the uh-huh. next thing. I, it, it's hard to explain. I, I don't really... No, I can imagine. I don't have an answer for why they did that. Well, it, there are sometimes white kids do bad things. <laughs> I mean, it well, just... <laughs> right. Of course. I guess what what was made it unusual is yeah. that had not happened before. Uh-huh. And this, so, of course, the association was, right. you know, this... African-American kid did this. This is what happens when African-Americans move into a neighborhood. Do you think... The the fact is the neighborhood did become more dangerous over time because the city totally ignored it, and it pulled in poorer and poorer people. And poverty and crime are not necessarily together, but you don't usually find crime in your wealthiest suburbs. This is true. So even though... I imagine most white people who had fear of black people uh, may not have associated it with the poverty, with the limitation of of opportunities. uh, And, uh, you know, if you draw a map of high poverty, high unemployment, and a map of high crime, you're pretty much drawing the same map generally. You know, yeah, I mean, it, yes, you can't you can't deny that, and it is a a, a serious problem. I mean, oh, yeah. and of course you have all of your economic base that leaves after um, uh-huh. Martin Luther King riots of 1968. Uh, every we had a, we had a vibrant business district, and every business left, so there was no yeah. economic base to the community any longer. And it wasn't, it's probably important for people to understand that it wasn't so much the people that moved in. It was how the system was manipulated to uh, discriminate against black people and to uh, exacerbate poverty, really. And, and, you know, it's, it's harder to understand that when you, you know, oh, there's a black person, he or she is bad. You know, that's so much easier than to try to figure out uh, the the financial uh, monkeying around uh, that, that happens with redlining in specific. Uh, you know, it, it's easier to right. do that. Now, I will admit, I 
was not familiar with the story of Desi Mae Williams. She was 23 years old when she died. Please tell us about her death and what resulted and how that ties into this whole story. Right, okay. Uh, Desi Mae Williams was a young African-American woman who was in the wrong place at the wrong time, as one might say. We had a fire department that was about maybe four or five blocks from where I lived. Um, And this fire department was an all-white fire department, even after the neighborhood had become primarily African-American. As I'd mentioned, 63 is when the first African-American moved onto her block. Now, in August of 1965, we had um, riots raging in Watts, We were already beginning to see riots and some um, like to call them uprisings in cities throughout the country. Um, And this fire department, from what I understand from interviews I did with people who lived in the neighborhood at the time, was pretty racist. Um, One story I heard, and I I can't prove this story, but it it came from the mouth of a person who lived there. Um, She said that sometimes what would happen is if the blacks would call the fire department in, say, for a small kitchen fire, then the fire department would come in, the men, firefighters, and they would just spray water all over the apartment just to be mean, Mm. just just to be racist. Mm. So there was a lot of resentment against this fire department, and a lot of people in the community and community leaders were, were mobilized to try to ask the city to integrate it, but they didn't. So... This resentment was already there. It was a tinderbox, and this incident with Desi Mae Williams lit the match. A fire truck left the fire station with a hook and ladder truck. There's always supposed to be a man at the tiller, and his job is to steer the ladder because it's this huge, long thing that can swing around. Uh, Somehow the tiller man didn't get to the ladder. The fire truck took a swerving turn around a corner, and there was no tillerman, and the ladder swung free and killed Desi Mae Williams, who was just standing on the corner, whether to cross, to wait for a bus, I'm not sure. But that just ignited the, the blacks in the community, and they called for a rally. In my book, I have a picture of the actual um, poster that was put up to say, you know, black, you know, drunk, they said drunken fireman kills black woman. Right. Now, whether he was drunk or not, I have no idea. That could have just been um, hyperbole or could have been true. But a group came to hear people speak, and then they got riled up, and they started moving out into the community and throwing Molotov cocktails and burning places down. And it was... You know, it was not horrible, but people don't remember it, even in Chicago, because Watts was so much huger and more destructive and more deadly yeah. that it overshadowed the smaller um, event in Chicago. Mm. But it happened uh, in your neighborhood. and you know, you got It happened just a few blocks from where I lived. I was not home that night. My parents had no idea this was going on. They took an unusual day off to be at a lake in Wisconsin. Mm. And as they were driving home, these these riots are occurring. Mm. They have no idea until they get just about to their block and they see all the Mars lights of of the police cars spinning and they're directed away from the main thoroughfare there, Pulaski. Um, And when they got home, my dad, who had worked in fire prevention for 13 years, says to my mom, I'm going to find out what's happening. (laughs) 
and starts walking right towards the um, towards the riots, not realizing that it is actually a race riot. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, she she obviously made it out okay. He he did, um, and uh, that I I tell the story of my brother going to look, look for him and try to save him, thinking that he's going to literally thought he was going to get killed. Wow. Nothing like real experience, and that's what memoirs are and how they can be so uniquely informative of, of history. It's a unique point of view, and it's important. Now, your parents, as we've said, came to accept and even embrace black neighbors and ultimately sold their property to a black community development organization at a substantial discount. Why did they do this? Tell us a bit about your parents' evolution over the course of this transition. Well... Uh, first of all, as I mentioned, uh, they did not sell their buildings. They had two, uh, two flats. And then my grandparents left very suddenly that same summer of 1965. In June, before the riots occurred, my, par- my grandparents, without any warning, said to my, my parents, we're leaving, and here, you take our six flats. And what's important to understand is that this had been my grandparents and father's neighborhood since 1912. Mm. My grandfather settled there with a job um, in the heart of the commercial district, which was just beginning to grow at that time in 1912. Dad was born in 1914. He Mm. grew up in this community. He went to a church uh, called Bethel Church, very close, about a block from our home. Uh, So he really viewed this as as his community. And I think that was another reason, a psychological reason, he didn't want to leave. Um, So what happened was 30 years later, they're in their late 60s. And this this was a tremendously straining job, especially on my mom, because she managed all the moving parts. Dad would go every week down to the neighborhood to take care of broken windows or to take care of rats. There's a story about killing the rats and take and gather up stray dogs. But by the late by their late sixties they, they were getting tired. Yeah. And they decided to sell two of the buildings. They didn't sell the building I grew up in. Well Bethel, the church that had been my father's church since the twenties, their church they were married in, that was my church, had um, developed there was a, a community development organization that came out of this church, which became countrywide renowned for its success. And they knew about it. It was called Bethel New Life. You could probably Google it and find out all about it. And they knew that Bethel New Life was into the business of providing low-income housing. And I don't know exactly why they gave it to Bethel, whether they just thought Bethel would take care of their property better than just selling it to some real estate agent. Um, but that's what they did. They, they, they got the place appraised. It was worth $10,000 less than it had been when they received it, which is 25% less. Uh, it was 40000 in 1965. By 1983, it was appraised at $30,000. Oh. This is the sixth flat. And they um, decided to half donate, half sell it to Bethel New Life. That was the deal. That's how Bethel New Life was able to create this low-income housing. So they said, okay, your house is appraised at $30,000. We'll give you 15000 in cash, and the other 15000 will be considered to be a donation. Right. Um, 
a tax-deductible donation. But, right. of course, my parents didn't make enough money for that to no. mean much. So that's how it came about. And that I've visited that Six Flat several times since then, and um, it's still there. It's, uh, H-U, not H-U-D, but the, um, uh, the, the one Jimmy Carter worked for, my mind has gone blank, it helped to rehab it. Oh, right. Habitat for Humanity. Ah, oh, yes, Habitat for Humanity, yeah. yeah. So, so it's it's still there. It's still owned by Bethel New Life, and they're still renting it out as low-income housing. Well, I I do believe that, you know, the way to improve the national economy, one thing is to increase demand, uh, and that, you know, when you have fewer people that don't have money, but you give, you know, allow people to enter the middle class to have a little bit of money, it's good for everybody. But that's not necessarily how the government sees things or has in the past. And, and quite frankly, it's not how white people see things anymore. I mean, we have in true. Chicago a requirement that new developments have to put aside 10% for low-income housing for Section 8. Mm-hmm. And um, many of the communities that are all white, especially the northwest side of uh, the city, they will protest and badger their aldermen to not allow these projects to go forward because they don't want 10%... Of the people, let's say 300 units, 30 units, they don't want 10% low-income housing in their community. Mm-hmm. So we still have this going on today, and until we allow you know, people of every race who are low-income to be able to live among more middle-class people, we're just going to continue to segregate our country and keep these people, mm. when I say these people, I mean all low-income right. people, all people who have access to these housing vouchers. We're going to keep them down. Um, and who does that serve? I mean, really, who does that serve? It just no, it doesn't help us. It doesn't help our whole economy. I mean, all, all this talent that's lost. Yeah. Yeah, tremendous talent that's lost. You're right about that. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here on Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Linda Gartz, whose new book is Redlined, a memoir of race, change, and fractured community in 1960s Chicago. And you mentioned that your father was born in 1914, as was mine. And my, okay. my dad was in real estate, and he saw redlining for what it was. And I remember him telling me as a little kid how much he hated redlining. Oh. He, he was a good liberal. Uh, I remember he was, <laughs> he was very happy when the Fair Housing Act of 1968 did away with redlining, uh, at least in theory. You say it, it didn't work. What did? Why didn't the Fair Housing Act of 1968 do away with redlining? Was it not supposed well, to? Well, I think it, it certainly did away with um, the, the legality of doing this, where that every, every African-American could be denied a loan. The way it works today, it seems to me, is that it's much more subtle. Nobody can deny a loan to an African-American and say, we're not giving you a loan because you're black. That's just illegal. But a recent study that was done by the PBS NewsHour in conjunction with um, Reveal, the Center for Investigative Reporting, this came out in February, and they crunched the numbers in about 30 million mortgages, and they found out that whites still get mortgages at about three times the rate that blacks do, even when there's the same financial profile of the African-American and the white person. So something is going on there. How, you know, the banks, of course, deny this. They say, oh, no, 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 that we wouldn't do that. It's just the way, you know, there must be a credit score difference. 
But there is one example in this report that was given where a black woman applied for a mortgage. She had a steady job. She was turned down. Her white partner, who had a less steady job and not as good an income, applied for a mortgage and was accepted. So what's going on there? It's I, I don't know exactly how they're figuring this out. I've had people push back on me on my Facebook page and say, Oh no, 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 we'd be happy you know, we real estate people want to sell whenever we can. Um, but if you've got these statistics, something is not right, whether they're looking at somebody's name, if the person comes in to get the mortgage and they can see that they're African American, whether it's they can label them by their neighborhood, it's not clear. But if you've got these statistics, yeah, something is going on. Yeah, I do find it interesting. You know, there was there was Jim Crow in the early and mid twentieth century. Now we have a far more subtle, but it seems perhaps equally effective uh, form of uh, discriminating based on color. It, it's mm-hmm. it's remarkable to me how it's gone forward and how maybe there's not literal red lines anymore where there used to be, but it seems, as you're saying, I mean, there's examples of, of what's going on. And, and you write that in 2014, your old neighborhood, West Garfield Park, was ranked sixth out of 77 Chicago communities in violent crime and 10th in property crimes. Why do you think did it not make a recovery? Talk us through the divestment and decline. What were the factors there? Now, that is something that has always surprised me because this neighborhood has beautiful housing stock. The, na- the home that I grew up in is a beautiful graystone two-flat that if it were in a different neighborhood would go for well over a million dollars, um, probably two million dollars. I've, I've seen some of these two flats that are they're just wow. desirable. It's five miles from downtown. You can hop on an L train a couple blocks from where I used to live and be downtown in 15 minutes. Cool. There's been tremendous disinvestment. The city just didn't care about this neighborhood. People, I mean, the city would invest, you know, we've invested in this beautiful river walk. We've invested in so many things that attract tourists to the downtown area. But the people that live in this neighborhood, I think they've just been written off. Mm. We have this mass incarceration of African-American men for minor drug crimes. That reduces the number of household members who can contribute to the household. And when they get out of prison, of course, it's very difficult to find a job. So you have people who are unable to work except in the underground economy, Mm. which is usually drugs. So I just feel like the city hasn't made the effort to put money into this neighborhood, to bring stores in there and maybe even underwrite some of these stores. I mean, I understand stores are in the business of making money and they want to be in a community where they can make money, but there are some stores that do very well in this community. So I I don't know, I honestly don't know the answer and I'm not sure that anybody really does, but I would think a lot of it, if the community, if the city had come to West Garfield Park, the way our country went to Germany and Japan yes. after World War II, and said, "Gee, you guys killed four hundred, you know, four hundred thousand of our young men, but we're going to pour billions of dollars into your economy to rebuild you." And yet, in this community, the idea was, "Well, you've rioted, you've destroyed your neighborhood, so too bad for you." You know, why wasn't there a Marshall Plan for the West Side when we had a Marshall Plan? 
for our former enemies. I, I, I just don't understand it. I don't understand that either. It makes so much sense, and, and it works. You know, it just, it does clearly work. It helps restore neighborhoods and, and helps the economy altogether. It, you know, instead, they just give uh, tax cuts to the super rich, which is mm-hmm. nuts, of course. It only makes things worse. Now, you were a teacher. Where and of what, and how did you make the transition from being a teacher to becoming a filmmaker? And... Your educational videos, I must say, include Emmy, the Emmy Award-winning Begin With Love, hosted by Oprah Winfrey, and Grandparenting, hosted by Maya Angelou. Big stars. Uh, so how did your, uh, uh, of course, yourself included, how did uh, your being a teacher and a filmmaker inform your book? How did all that lead to where you are now? Was it just no relation? I'm guessing it did have something to do with it. Well, I you know, became a teacher. I was actually a German major in undergrad, which, don't ask me why, except I like the language, which has served me well, by the way. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, then I got my master's in teaching, and I taught in actually a quite a wealthy suburb of Chicago. I taught in Chicago Public School first, and then I um, got this job um, in a very lovely suburb uh, called Winnetka. And I taught there uh, for about six or seven years, and then I felt like, oh, I just wanted to try something else. I had no idea what it was. I searched and searched and searched, and those are the days when you had to search through a telephone book. There was no internet. I accident took a class in video production. Somebody said, oh, if you want to teach at the business level, they're using video now. So I took this class in video production, and I just loved it. Everything that I'd loved about teaching, I found that I could apply to video production. You know, you had to research your subject, you had to know your audience, you got to present your information in a creative manner. So I decided to move into that field, and I did. You know, one job leads to another. And the, uh, the two videos that you mentioned, actually I did not win the Emmys for those. Those were videos. Uh, I won Emmys for my documentaries, which were produced for WTTW, our local uh, PBS station, sure. also I, as associate producer, there were several shows I worked on that won Emmys at CBS in Chicago. Yeah. So I think just the in the way of looking at information, doing interviews with people, then choosing the sound bites from those interviews that work best in the production. In a way, I was doing the same thing. I was looking to these letters and diaries and asking myself which quotes of all the thousands of words I'm reading will most inform what I want to talk about in this book. Right. And so that, I think, is the most influential part that my documentary producing had on the book, that I understood how to interweave these kinds of things, although, let me, I assure you, it did not happen overnight. (laughs) (laughs) Not. And, and uh, you know, just grabbing people's attention through uh, research and, and, you know, just finding the best quotes. I can only imagine how it felt to discover uh, the uh, catalog of, of letters and things. That must have been uh, quite the amazing feeling. Well, yeah, you know, it, it, like I mentioned in the book, you know, it felt like the ghost of these people were standing next oh, to me wow. whispering their secrets. Yeah. Uh. Um, my, my, especially my uncle, whom I never had an opportunity to meet. So I feel I know him now. I probably know him better than people who actually knew him in person uh, because he writes to all different sorts of people, and each letter reflects, the, reflects his personality in relationship to this person. 
his mother gets one type of letter, my dad gets another type of letter, and, you know, he just turns out to be this delightful, charming young man about whom I wrote a blog post for Veterans Day. Huh. Well, just to wrap it up here, I, I try to be optimistic. Sometimes it isn't easy, Lord knows. But do you think if, if white people were to better understand such things as, as redlining, uh, you know, I think most, most white people don't really understand that racism and white privilege are real. They don't see it. They don't feel it. If people were to understand redlining, do you think it would, could make a difference in the depth and breadth of racism going forward once people see that stuff? I, I have to believe it does. Well, I, I do think so. I have been told by many people, both in the Amazon re- reviews I've received about this book and from people who tell me in person, they say, you know, I didn't realize that, that this even existed. Uh-huh. And quite frankly, most people are shocked. Yeah. You know, but then people have to do something. In other words, if they uh-huh. just read about this and then they say to their aldermen, we don't want low-income housing in our community. Yeah. There has to be an open-mindedness. And I think that if we can change minds, sort of, as they say, one heart at a time, right. that perhaps there's some hope. But we have a lot of, a lot of catching up to do because the, the uh, discrimination that has occurred against blacks, and especially their, uh, the discrimination in their ability to gain wealth and, and equality in their income, yeah. If we cannot, if we can understand where this came from, as opposed to just the knee-jerk reaction that I've gotten from some people, which is, well, you know, the civil rights movement is well in the past, and we're done with that, and the reason that blacks aren't doing any better is it's their own fault, they don't work hard enough, you know, da-da-da-da. And say, well, let's take a look at this this wealth angle. How, How are you able to send your child to college? You've built wealth from your parents' home. And African Americans couldn't do that. So I think even any anything that helps shed light on uh, these these issues, there are some people who are just resistant no matter what. They will never change their mind. But for those people who are people of goodwill and are willing to open their minds and hearts, I think it really it can make a difference in the way they vote, in the way they look at you know what are what Ben Carson is doing. <laughs> you know, it's just. Ugh. Amazing. We have a black person in charge of HUD, and he's prejudiced against blacks. <laughs> and he, yeah, oh, absolutely. It is amazing. I, I have to believe the more you know, I mean, whether it's other people or just the real situation here, it, it has to improve things. Well, the book is called Redlined, a memoir of race, change, and fractured community in 1960 Chicago. Uh, thank you for being with us, Linda Gartz. It's uh, very revealing and uh, hopefully can help the situation along. Thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy. Thank you so much, and I just want to mention that sure. if, if people want to learn more about redlining and more about the book and about the family letters, just go to my website, lindagartz.com, and there's a wealth of information there, um, and I would welcome anybody's uh, comments or notes to me. And it's Linda, G-A-R-T-Z, lindagartz.com. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it, Bert. All right, and here's a, a bunch of uh, white kids singing about how nice it is to have a home. A house is a very, very...